0: This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook Design works on an enormous and diverse range of interesting problems. So I asked George Kettenberg, a product designer at Facebook, what's the biggest challenge he's had since designing there?
1: You know, Facebook is pretty big and it does a lot of things and there's a lot of designers working on Facebook. And so making sure that you know, we're making an experience that's kind of cohesive across all the different platforms and products and all the different parts of Facebook that lots of people don't even see and making it feel like it's all one thing. That too is, um, is a pretty interesting challenge for sure.
0: Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast. A weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what
1: inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry.
0: Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. No email service provider is better when it comes both to functionality as well as customer service. Sign up today for a free account at MailChimp.com. When you have a great idea, you want to secure a great domain name for it. That's where Hover comes in. Hover makes it super easy for you to not only find the domain name that you're looking for, but get it up and running with no hassle and no heavy-handed upselling. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use our promo code REVISIONPATH, and you'll save 10% off your purchase. Have you heard about Revolve Conference? This conference takes place October 26th through 28th in Charleston, South Carolina, and it's the place to be for talks on experience design, business, marketing, and how they're all related. We're working with Revolve this year to offer RevisionPath listeners a chance to win three free tickets to attend. Each ticket includes full access to all sessions and activities throughout the conference, including breakfast and lunch. For more information on how you can win free tickets to Revolve Conference, join our Slack community. There's a link in the show notes. And speaking of giveaways, we're also giving away a copy of Rip the Resume, a new book by recruiter Torrin Ellis. If you're looking for a job, then Rip the Resume will help you become a more attractive candidate to job seekers. We'll put a link in the show notes for the giveaway as well. Torn will also be our October AMA chat guest, so stay tuned for more information about that. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update, so we're still holding steady at 39 patrons for a combined total of $267 a month. Again, thanks to all of you that have pledged your support and your appreciation for the show. If you enjoy what we're doing here at Revision Path, if you enjoy the guests that we have on the show, or you've gotten any value from listening, then please consider becoming a patron. You'll get some really great perks like early access to future episodes and free Revision Path goodies. Just head on over to Patreon.com forward slash Path and make that happen. Pledge levels start at just $1 per month, and it's a great and affordable way to support the show on a regular basis. Now let's get on to this week's interview. This week I'm talking with UX designer Kevon Tyser. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do.
1: My name is Kevon Tyser. I'm a UX designer in San Francisco, California, and I work for the University of California Office of the President.
0: So talk to me about what it's like working for the University of California. How'd you swing that?
1: Yeah, so it's, um, it's pretty interesting. I actually uh, found the job on LinkedIn, so that's not super interesting. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but it's, it's an interesting place to work. The University of California is just this like amazingly large organization. I think it's like it's the second largest employer in California right after the actual like state government. The job I was at before this was at a startup. So <laughs> a university is essentially the opposite of a startup. So it's mm-hmm. uh, it's been a pretty, pretty uh, big transition. There's just a lot more institution kind of, I'm going to say in the way, but I don't mean in the sense of like blocking, but just anytime you kind of want to, like, start an initiative or get things done. There's just a lot of institution there (laughs) to get through.
0: What kind of duties and things are you working on?
1: At the Office of the President, we work on um, things that kind of have to do with functions that go across the entire university. So I think when people think of the University of California, they think of, like, just the schools, so, like, UCLA, UC Berkeley, and whatnot. But, um, you know, the UC also runs, like, major medical centers in California. They also run labs. Specifically for my job, I I work on different products that kind of support different efforts that go, like, across these different elements of the university.
0: Yeah, I was only thinking of the schools now that you mention it. So a lot of the work that you do also, it doesn't just, I guess, matter in the field of education, but it, it matters in finance it matters in healthcare things like that right those are all sorts of things you have to take into account with what you do
1: yeah like just kind of supporting the university's operations you know for example um i worked on an app in the past that was that kind of like dealt with just the university's purchasing and kind of keeping track of how much money each of the different campuses and like medical centers are spending and it's it's things like that like the uc is kind of in into everything you could possibly imagine Mm -hmm. yeah
0: so what's like a regular day like for you because it sounds like you at any point in time are doing something different
1: yeah so that's the thing there isn't too much of a typical day I would say like my typical days they kind of just last for a season in that at any given point I could be working on multiple projects and I could be on like any any stage of like the design process so some parts, some projects I might be like just doing research, so I'm like scheduling interviews with potential end users. Other projects might be in the middle of like an ideation phase, so I'm like making wireframes. Other things are just getting finished up, so, you know, I'm kind of like starting to work with the developers and getting them to understand what needs to be built and kind of why. So, like, at any given point, uh, things, multiple things, are at multiple stages, and a lot of the job is kind of actually managing that.
0: Just managing the chaos, basically.
1: Yeah, as much as you can.
0: How long have you been there so far?
1: It'll be a year next week.
0: Oh wow! Honestly. Congratulations. Thank you. you said before that you said you were at a startup.
1: Yeah. That was BitTorrent, right? Yeah, BitTorrent. Talk about that. Yeah, so BitTorrent was a very interesting company to work at because. I don't know, it's it's kind of infamous. You know, a lot of people work for a famous company, but BitTorrent is, it's like it has infamy kind of around the product. And I think a lot of people aren't even actually sure of what the company is or that it even is a company. So to explain a little bit more, BitTorrent is um, the company that makes the BitTorrent protocol, which is a file sharing protocol, and they make the most popular BitTorrent client, which is uTorrent. And unfortunately, most people associate UTorrent with illegally downloading music and movies and other types of media. So that's kind of where the infamy comes from, as far as the company's concerned. But you know, it was a very interesting place to work because of course, like as a company, they don't endorse that, and they are actually doing some like very interesting product work that um, I got to be a part of to kind of uh, Actually, both product and branding work. I wasn't um, so much on the branding side, but a lot of work that's kind of like attempting to change the image of the company. And uh, we worked a lot on kind of trying to change the image of the company through the product, which is a really interesting challenge.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, what sort of other things does BitTorrent do aside from, like you said, that that infamous infamous knowledge of downloading things illegally?
1: Yeah, so... First of all, uh, the, the technology itself is just an extremely kind of useful technology. The kind of whole benefit of BitTorrent is it allows like transfer of just extreme amounts of data very quickly and uh, very cheaply. So they do a lot of things that um, have to do with uh, distributed systems. Like uh, they have one product, it used to be called BitTorrent Sync, but I think they rebranded it pretty recently. And it's, it's, it's similar to Dropbox. It's like distributed Dropbox where... You can have all these files on your computer and, like, share them with other people. And, you know, it's all happening kind of in this decentralized way. So there's, like, no need for a central server, which is really nice. They're also doing some work with streaming video, which is really cool. It was a fun company to work at. I enjoyed my time there.
0: When you mention those things, it reminds me, and you're probably going to laugh at this, it reminds me of the HBO show Silicon Valley and Pied Piper. Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah. like, I feel
0: like their tool was similar, at least the way that you're describing it, like that.
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. That show, it hits home in so many, so many ways. <laughs> just in that, you know, like, like kind of one of the running themes, I think just in Silicon Valley in general, is that, you know, like you have like these engineers that develop this technology and they're like very attached to it and they, they want people to appreciate why it's great, you know, but but your average layman, like, they, they just aren't going to really get there. So, you know, that's why I guess it's important for us designers and marketers and whatnot to come together to be able to, like, translate from whatever these engineers have in their mind to the public so they can, you know, so they can actually make use of the value of the technology.
0: Was it the job at BitTorrent that sort of made you move out there to the Valley?
1: Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, before I was in BitTorrent, I was living in Los Angeles, uh, so I I had gone to grad school before that, and I moved back home for a few months. And I was looking for things just in general in California, but yeah, I ended up finding the job at BitTorrent because uh, one of my old classmates from when I was in grad school actually was already working there, and she referred me, so it was a really good opportunity.
0: So being out there in the Valley, of course, there's always so much talk, I swear to God, in the past year, maybe more than that. It's all this talk about black people in Silicon Valley, black coders in Silicon Valley. Being a black coder in Silicon Valley, what is it like for you? What's the environment?
1: So I don't um I don't really code, but you know, like I, I guess I'm kind of like in the in the tech circles or within this kind of tech bubble that we have out here. And yeah. I mean, there just aren't <laughs> as many of us out here, you know. So, or as many black people out here as there are, um, I guess, in other cities. And I think when you are kind of a black person in this tech bubble, you kind of have to find your people, you know, like, like, I think for a lot of people, that means like, go to Oakland, but um, (laughs) that's, that's what it means for me too. But yeah, it's, there just aren't, you know, there aren't very many of us out here kind of in tech in general. And then when you get down into the specific companies, things can be even a little bit more spread out, I guess. So it's challenging, you know, like there's a lot of kind of being the only one, I guess. So at BitTorrent, I was the only Black person there for a few months when I first joined. And the company was, I think, about 130 people at that point. And then eventually two more Black people joined. So that was pretty cool, you know, and and luckily, like we did actually make friends, which is nice because, you know, that's also not necessarily a given that, like, just because there's another black person at your job, you don't necessarily, like, make friends and, like, form this bond, you know? That's true. Yeah, it's, it's good when yeah, you can think,
0: I think that's true everywhere.
1: Yeah. Definitely, <laughs> definitely.
0: Is it good that the conversation is so prevalent out there? Like, I would imagine that would make black people that are working in tech companies just very hyper-visible, often whether they want to be or not.
1: I think it's really good that the conversation is more prevalent, and um, I think it'll only be good for at least the foreseeable future. There seem to be, like, you know, a few people that are, like, extremely popular on Twitter, I guess, to kind of be getting their opinions on, um, I guess, race relations in (laughs) Silicon Valley. But I think it's a good conversation to be having because even outside of, I guess, companies here, you don't really see I guess as many black people like being integrated into the society I would say in San Francisco. There there certainly okay. are black neighborhoods here in the city. But when you're kind of in the tech bubble you tend to stay like like literally within those San Francisco city limits and I literally do from time to time play like a game of like find a group of people that has more than one black person in it and and it's shockingly rare, you know. <laughs> like so I think because there's kind of like so, so little, I guess, integration just in the general society of San Francisco, at least kind of like the tech society. I think like because there's so uh, little kind of integration just within the society itself, it's good to talk about it more so people can kind of like consider this, like not just within their work lives, within their lives in general.
0: That's a really good point. I, I'm glad that you mentioned that kind of lack of integration into society just in general. Certainly with San Francisco, there's been talk about this uh i don't even want to say it's a graying but certainly you are seeing the city's minority population dwindle a lot in years there was this movie i remember that came out i want to say this was maybe in like 2009 or 2010 this movie called medicine for melancholy and it starred why it's in that i did um, yeah, the other of daily show the trailer yeah and so the the director is this guy named barry jenkins and He shot the movie in a very desaturated kind of tone. And I remember uh, it it aired here in Atlanta at the National Black Arts Festival. And we had like this Q&A and I had asked him or someone asked him in the audience, probably wasn't me, but someone in the audience asked him why they decided to go with that kind of almost black and white kind of tone. And he said that the reason for it is that he wanted to sort of depict the movie visually how it is for him in San Francisco and that there's so
1: little color. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I definitely can see that. And it's, it, I mean, it's so, it, it gets driven home really well because kind of all you have to do to bring the color back is like literally cross the Bay bridge and, and go to Oakland. You know, I don't want to paint Oakland like this magical wonderland, but I mean, really like as soon as you cross the bridge, you know, you, you just see so many more people of color and it's like, it's, it's very obvious. I think to people of color, once that flip, once that switch kind of flips, so, yeah, I definitely can see how how we would have that perception because I think it's I think it's real.
0: It's interesting how, you know, Silicon Valley and I guess San Francisco being the epicenter of that, it's just so it feels like it's just so closed off from everything else. I lived out there years and years, I'd say almost fifteen years ago or so, and that was really only for the summer. I was doing an internship in Mountain View. And there were these times I would be able to get on the cow train and I would go up to San Francisco. And it wasn't – it certainly isn't how it is now just in terms of the level of technology. I was up there around 2000, right around the time the bubble burst mm-hmm. or was about to burst or something like that. And it it's still – you had this this really interesting feeling of being in your own world in San Francisco just in general. Like just because of the, the surroundings, the big hills on the streets and you've got the beach and the climate. It just felt different than anywhere else. Like certainly I'd get back on the train – and come back down to Mountain View, and it's like, oh, I'm I'm back in Mountain View, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I no,
1: I, I definitely know what you mean. It's it's weird. I mean, I always kind of tell people it's it's so, it's so kind of unideal for like the tech industry to have chosen, or like maybe not necessarily chosen, but for it to have happened here because it's just this place that's you know surrounded on three sides by water. It's very inconvenient, you know. <laughs> You know, I I wouldn't wish this on Oakland, but it kind of makes you wonder, like, why couldn't it have happened there? (laughs) But, you know, I guess maybe that wouldn't be the greatest thing either.
0: Do you think that, I don't know, since there is this division, uh, like you say, once you cross the Bay Bridge, do you think that Oakland and San Francisco will start kind of, I don't want to say gentrifying or integrating, but that feels like the right terms to use in terms of just society?
1: Yeah, well, I think, so Oakland, I think, is pretty integrated in general. I would say the gentrification kind of is, is, is happening there already. Um, like, you know, more and more people, even, even I've just been here like a little over two and a half years and more people are starting to kind of use the up and coming terminology on it. And, (laughs) you know, that's, it's, it's kind of worrying because it's like, uh oh, (laughs) like, and I, I mean, you can, you can just tell it's happening, you know, like things are getting torn down and, and rebuilt as, you know, like shopping areas. And that's just, that's what happens. That's justification.
0: Yeah. So let's go back then, because say you've only been out there for about two and a half years working, of course, at BitTorrent, working at University of California. Before that, you were here on the East Coast. And this is HBCU month. So let's talk about where you went to school.
1: Yeah. When I started my uh, college career uh, for undergrad, I went to Howard University in Washington, D.C.,
0: Howard University. We've had a lot of people on the show that have uh, have went to Howard. Speak very, very fondly of Howard. What was your time like there?
1: It was wonderful, frankly. It was very interesting when I when I first got there. I actually really didn't want to go to Howard. I really I, like. I kind of like fought with my parents over it, but. And that was because I just kind of, like, didn't want to move out east, you know. I think, like, growing up in California, there was just kind of this ever-present, like, you know, there's no need to leave California. We have this wonderful university system. Uh, there's USC. There's Loyola Marymount. Why would you want to leave? And I was just very <laughs> wrapped up in that, <laughs> I think, my, um, as I was a senior in high school. Uh, actually, I got a scholarship to go to Howard, and my parents were like, "Well, no, <laughs> like you, you're definitely <laughs> you're definitely not um gonna be in the driver's seat on this one." So, mm-hmm. yeah, I just really wasn't into it when I got there. But I think one of the special things about Howard, and I I, I really imagine most HBCUs is that they they work so hard at kind of instilling this this level of like. Family ties between the students and like even even to a degree the faculty, and it's kind of hard not to get like swept up in that pretty quickly and like realize oh this is actually like like a great place this is kind of where I feel like I need to be right now you know.
0: So you say probably like that first year or so you just you weren't feeling it.
1: Yeah, even maybe maybe like half of the first year, maybe the first semester because you do get there and like the dorms were a little you know dc is very hot and muggy as the summer comes to a close and it's like thunderstorming every day and like all i could yeah. think of is it never rains in los angeles why did i <laughs> why did i do this <laughs> this is the worst but uh you know was eventually it... that cleared up oh it became the winter maybe okay after the winter ended because that was also kind of hard mm-hmm. yeah coming from was
0: it a big culture shock
1: yeah yeah one of the i guess interesting things was I guess I didn't really know what it was like to live in a city with that many black people. Because, you know, D.C., it's, you know, it's, it's chocolate city. When I was in L.A., like, I guess the East Coast more so than, like, West Coast cities have, like, almost these strongholds of blackness. You know, like, L.A. definitely has, like, parts of different neighborhoods where, you know, like, I, I grew up specifically in Inglewood. And, you know, Inglewood is, like, a black neighborhood. But you go to D.C. and it's just, like, like it's so densely populated with black people. And, like, you're just walking down the street and, like, there's just so much kind of, like, I guess, you know, like, music playing and, like, you get introduced to go-go music. And it's, it's very different and it's very specific, um, which is yeah. really nice.
0: Yeah. When I started off at Morehouse, I mean, I didn't have to go far because Morehouse is in Georgia. I'm from Alabama originally. And my culture shock initially was just sort of from small-town country to big city. Mm-hmm. And we did have students at Morehouse, I mean, because Morehouse is a, is a school that, you know, people come from all over the world. So you've got, that's my sort of first introduction to really international students. And then, of course, students from California and students from up north. And I feel like everyone had their own shock once they got there. Part of it just being the shock of, I'm not at home. I'm in college and I can do what I want. Right. But then the the secondary shock of just the city itself and the culture there, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, I would definitely agree. That's another thing I kind of really appreciate about my time at Howard. It is like it really kind of gave me an appreciation for, you know, like the diaspora, you know, before I went to Howard, I just kind of thought, you know, like the Caribbean is the Caribbean, you know, (laughs) but like Mm -hmm. now I understand, you know, like there's, you know, there's like the Virgin Islands and there's like the Bahamas and, and like, you know, Jamaica and Haiti, and there's just so many kind of like different cultures that make up like what it is to be a part of the diaspora. And then, you know, and again, that's not even touching on people from around the United States.
0: Yeah. Now you studied computer science, correct at Howard? Yeah, I did. Talk about that. What was the department and everything like?
1: It was really cool. I think another kind of one of the benefits of going to an HBCU was that The professors, they just kind of have like a very specific mission of kind of like raising specific, I guess more so in the engineering school is like raising this next generation of black engineers because um, like a disproportionate number of black engineers do come from HBCUs. It was kind of nice to have, you know, professors that are willing to like give you this perspective on like what it means to like be a black engineer in America and like kind of perhaps what you might have to face once you're you know, outside of the university. So, like, you know, I really felt like the professors, like, cared about us as individuals. It was really nice that it was um, a smaller department. I don't know the exact number of students that were there, but I, I know it was, like, probably around, around, like, between, like, 50 and 70 computer science majors, I think, all across all the years of study. I think they really did take the time to, like, try and invest as much in us as possible.
0: Now, was there a particular... Discipline of computer science that you were focused on, like was it more web development? Was it more software development? What was the focus there?
1: So that's the thing, <laughs> and I think uh, this is changing, which is a good thing. But um, it was it was just kind of more of a theoretical take on computer science. Uh, we definitely took a lot of programming classes. There wasn't really anything about web. It was more general software development where. They would teach us like concepts and they would teach us C++ and kind of just expect us to take those concepts within that context and just apply it to whatever other context we might be in later on, whether that you know, be web development or mobile or whatnot. It was more based in theory, I think, than practice, and I think they're moving a little bit more into just teaching more practical skills, which I think that's, there's a balance to be struck there, but I think they're working towards finding that now, which is really good.
0: Right off the top of my head, I'm thinking of that Bloomberg article. Actually, it was a, it was a Bloomberg magazine piece mm-hmm. that was, it came out, I want to say, like around January of this year, like early this year, it came out. Yeah. That was about Howard University, specifically about the computer science department, some of the faculty and staff there, some of the students. It was called Why Doesn't Silicon Valley Hire Black Coders? Now, being a product of that department, what was your take on that?
1: Well, it's been a while since I read it, but there are, there are definitely some things I remember reading in that article. I definitely remember feeling that it was pretty fair because like, like I um, was talking about earlier, like we did have this computer science-like program that was very based in theory. And to a degree, companies... When they're looking to hire software engineers, they're just like looking for people that can you know execute on this code. And you know like it's good to like understand the computer science theories like behind what you're doing because you're going to need to be doing that like consistently. But there wasn't as much of a focus on kind of like modern software engineering techniques in that program. and I think that like you know, it's just very key when you're marketing yourselves to uh, these tech companies to be very strong in those things and I think a lot of times, at least at the time I was there, that was a little bit more up to us to kind of like learn and figure out by ourselves (laughs) than like it actually being integrated into the curriculum. I think the article also talked about, you know, how they're partnering more with Google and they're actually have like some Googlers teaching classes. And um, I think that's a very, I think that that's very key for the program and its future, just because... Um, So like when I went to grad school, I went to, you know, Carnegie Mellon University and um, not to like jump the gun on that, but like being there, that's kind of like one of these premier computer science institutions and kind of like seeing how the students there were like, you know, constantly in direct contact with their, with other students who like had like recently graduated and now are working at like Google and Facebook and whatnot. Like the, the current students are constantly in contact with them and they're constantly informed on, like what it takes to work at these companies and like in very specific terms, you know, like like they can tell you You know if you're getting a B in this algorithms class you're set for a Facebook interview And we didn't oh. necessarily like have that at Howard, you know because we didn't really have like someone who had like gone on To work at Facebook at that point and like, you know Definitely not enough of them that we were just constantly in contact. So now that they are bringing these uh, people that are at these companies in to kind of like help with the curriculum, they can get more of this direct feedback, but I think it's really key for actually ending up working those pla- at those places.
0: Well, no, let's jump forward because that is a really interesting place to go there, just in terms of making sure that the school is preparing you for the job market. I know there's the whole thing about you go to college because you want to learn, but also, I mean, let's be frank. You go to college so you can find a job. Yeah. <laughs> and whatever the major is that you're in, you would hope that you would be able to find something where you could make a, a decent living off of it.
1: Definitely. Uh,
0: to that respect, do you feel like Carnegie Mellon prepared you more for the working world than Howard?
1: I would say they prepared me in different ways. So. Okay. Like, definitely in the job I'm doing right now, like, I um I didn't, like, study anything that was design-related at Howard. So, like, I couldn't be a designer without having, like, gone to Carnegie Mellon. But I think, like, like I was mentioning earlier, like, Howard was really good about kind of, like, just giving you these these keys you need to, like, operate as a black professional in the workplace. And I don't know that I would have gotten that at Carnegie Mellon. I don't know if I would have gotten that so specifically. So... And and definitely, like at Howard, like I learned a program, and it it comes in very handy, like in my, you know, like my designer life now. so I, I definitely think they just prepare me in different ways, I would say
0: I got you. Yeah. It prepares you in different ways. It's sort of that whole notion of of double consciousness in a way. yeah, the, the HBCU prepares you for just kind of what it's going to be like being a black professional. And then yeah basically just what you said. yeah, but your time at at Carnegie Mellon really kind of, got you in the in the realm of saying, okay, these courses, I'm directly using this stuff that I learned in college in my job. Exactly. And that's not to say that you won't get that, you know, for an HPC use, but I wonder if that's just something that is more endemic of these STEM fields, particularly with computer science and design and stuff. That sort of thing. I'm curious about about that. That's not a question I'm asking Mm -hmm. you. I'm just sort of opining out loud. If that is the case, wondering if HBCUs are really preparing the next generation of designers in general, not just from that, you know, sort of paraprofessional standpoint, but from the standpoint of of knowledge, because not everyone is going to be able to go to graduate school or wants to go to graduate school. (laughs) I know I didn't want to go to graduate school (laughs) when I left when I left college. Initially, I was done with school because I went I had maybe a two month break between high school and college. Yeah. Actually, no, that's, that's, that's not even true. I had like a two week break okay. because I went for the summer and then the summer rolled right into the first semester and I just kept going. Yeah. And I, you know, didn't even think about when I graduated with my degree. I mean, it was a math degree and that's great, but I didn't want to be a math teacher and <laughs> <laughs> the department, the department didn't really set me up to say, hey, here are all these great jobs you can do with a math degree. It was more like, oh, you can go to graduate school. I don't want to go to graduate school oh well why don't you want to go to graduate school <laughs> like that was the only option yeah you know and, I, and eventually i did come around to design i had to use what i learned as a hobby to you know start my profession because it certainly wasn't at math and even now you know well over 10 years later that's still the case <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's still the yeah. case yeah i mean i, I totally agree i think at the time I was like about to graduate, like, like definitely our department had some more established relationships with some different companies. I think like, like Lockheed Martin would recruit from us a good mm-hmm. amount. And so would like Goldman Sachs. But um, I think the department kind of like slowly caught on, like during the time I was actually there to this notion that, you know, like, no, like kids are kind of applying to become like computer scientists because they want to like Work at Google, at least you know that's what they think you know and and this, yeah. and those are great opportunities, and like they should be afforded those opportunities so so again, I think it I think it's great that um they kind of are bringing in these these people from Google to give more direct um input and and guidance to how you might end up there
0: now, comparing you know the educational time you had at Howard with your time at Carnegie Mellon, and like you said, they prepared you in different ways, but how do you think HBCUs can really start to get up to speed with, with cranking out graduates that will be able to compete? Is it just about curriculum, or is it, is it more than that?
1: I think it's more than curriculum, but I think a big piece of it is curriculum. I know one of the kind of stark differences between CMU and Howard, and, and part of this is honestly just like the level of resources that CMU has at any given period, But CMU is, like, lightning fast about incorporating and, like, removing different things from their curriculum, like, as they relate to the industry. Um, (laughs) Like, when I was there at CMU, I took a class on cross-platform mobile web app development. And I thought that was just kind of, like, it was kind of nuts because, (laughs) like, they were teaching us technologies that hadn't even come out, like, A year before you know (laughs) and for better or worse uh, um, on if those technologies stick around you know like they do make sure they're constantly like affording their students these opportunities to have like these electives that are on the bleeding edge even as undergraduates whereas at Howard the curriculum was a little bit more like well no like these are like the the foundational concepts of computer science or like this is what we teach and if you want to kind of like gain some more skills that are going to be more like relevant to the workplace or if you want to target more specific job positions, that's a little bit more on you. You know, like, like mm. at, at no point at Howard did anybody like teach me JavaScript, you know, <laughs> like okay. that was, that was something where it's like, you know, if you want to do web development, you know, like teachers were happy to explain to you how you might reach that goal and um, how you might, um, and like, like the steps you might want to take, but um, they weren't necessarily like incorporating that into curriculum and like, like no one was teaching it to us like in a rigorous way, you know? Uh-huh. And that was, that was, I think a pretty major difference.
0: Something you mentioned earlier, just in terms of, of coursework with Carnegie Mellon, you said there's like this particular algorithms course and people would say, Oh, if you take this course, you're guaranteed a Facebook interview. And that to me is such a, a pipeline type of signifier, I suppose, Hmm. Where like, say if you're a student and you think about if I go to this school and take this course, it will automatically put me in the sight of these companies, that kind of thing. And I know we talk a lot about, in general, the pipeline sort of being this busted myth, but it is also sort of true in a way.
1: Yeah, certainly at CMU I saw I saw it in effect. You know, like some of these job fairs that they would have at, CMU were, um, were just shocking. I mean, like, like I literally would see recruiters like physically grab students and like ask uh-huh. them, were they computer science students and, you know, attempt to like recruit them. And it's just kind of like a different level of resources that they have available and kind of like just a different level of connections um, they have mm-hmm. to the industry. So I guess that, that going back to your uh, other question about like what can the HBCU departments do in addition to curriculum is like build these kind of like direct connections with these companies and, you know, they don't necessarily have to implement their direct input, but at least get their like input on what they could do to maybe change their curriculum to be more in line with what the companies are looking to hire.
0: Uh huh. So maybe they just need to move faster and just start building up those relationships. Cause I know just again, speaking back to that Bloomberg piece, there are companies that are looking to HBCUs as being that diversity solution. So to speak. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and so, it I mean it's it's kind of worrying too because, you know, like I don't oh, yeah. I don't want us to like miss our opportunity when they are really kind of looking towards us. Yeah. I know like a lot of these schools because, you know, like like I went to Howard and Howard is like, you know, it has one of the largest, you know, endowments out of all the HBCUs and it like is able to put kind of the most resources towards you know, like showcasing its students. And, you know, if if we're just not ready to meet that, to like rise to that occasion, I think Mm -hmm. the tech industry will eventually move on, you know? And that's not, that that won't be great.
0: That is so true. And I can speak on this mainly from just an AIGA standpoint. When we started doing research, I'd say, not not research, let me take that back. When we started doing outreach to HBCUs, I want to say maybe about 2014, 2015, me and several other task force members were reaching out to HBCUs. And Howard was, I think, the first one that we really were like, we need to talk to people at Howard because Howard had a design program. We knew people there. It just sort of made sense. And when I tell you the conversation went nowhere, Mm. they would not return an email. They would not return a phone call. And it's like, we're just trying to get the conversation started. Right. And I don't know if it was a matter because we don't know, you know, from their end what it might have been. Maybe they weren't ready. Maybe it was something else. But from our end, it looked like they weren't ready. We need to move on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's a very key part of this, <laughs> you know. Like, Yeah. Like they have to be ready to rise to that occasion when it comes along. You know, if, You know, definitely if someone wants to help you, <laughs> you know. Like you can't be unprepared, but you know that's that's yeah, heavily like, simplifying the situation
0: well no I mean it is heavily simplifying, but it's also I mean that's real talk you know yeah you have to be ready, especially now knowing that that's where the conversation is going knowing that that's what schools and, and companies are going to be looking at you for now and students what prospective students are going to be looking at you for like how are you really gonna help me if I want to get a job right <laughs> I don't know if that was really the case even, 10 or 15 years ago that people were thinking, oh, I'm going to go to HBCUs because I want to make sure I get this really strong STEM education. It felt like it was more about the culture and less about the curriculum.
1: Certainly. And, and there's also kind of even the a problem that's kind of underneath that is like how many students, you know, when they are coming into university, even know to be thinking that, you know, like I know mm. it is rather obvious, you know, like you go to college, you can like learn skills to get a job. But I don't I don't know how like at the forefront that is of the minds of um, a lot of young people, you know, <laughs> like, like especially when they're comparing universities they might go to or like thinking about going to an HBCU. So I think like perhaps some of the onus is on departments within HBCUs to be like, you know, kind of ensuring that that happens for them, you know?
0: Oh, I, absolutely. I think so. Do you, was it that way for you when you decided to go to Howard?
1: To a degree. I decided to major in computer science because I had always kind of been interested in technology. And Mm -hmm. I had taken like a programming class in my senior year of high school. So I was like, okay, this is something I can do. And like, you know, it it, it is lucrative. So (laughs) it sounds like it checks like a lot of the boxes. But I certainly know that wasn't everybody's situation. (laughs) And and it wasn't what everybody was thinking about.
0: That certainly wasn't what I was thinking about when I went to school. My mom wanted me to major in something that was like computer science or in the STEM field. One, because that was part of the scholarship that I got. It was like a a Ronald McNair scholarship and you had to major in these specific things. Because I wanted to be an English major. That was my thing. I wrote a lot in high school. That's what I wanted to do. But I also really liked math. I was the captain of the mathletes and all that (laughs) stuff in high
1: school. Oh, solid.
0: Yeah. And so I sort of bridged the gap by starting out doing it was a a dual degree, computer science, computer engineering. And I changed my major twice in the first semester. Mm. I changed like from computer science, computer engineering, to just computer science, and then changed from computer science to math. Because I remember distinctly going to my advisor, and I've talked about this on the show before, went to my advisor, and this was 1999. And I was telling him, I really wanted to like, design websites. I told him I had started doing it in high school and that I was really interested in going along that route. And he told me that the web is a fad and that this is not really something that we teach here and that if that's really what you want to do, you really should change your major.
1: That's problematic.
0: And that particular professor was a problematic professor. I'll I'll just say that Uh. in terms of his teaching style. He was very much I want to say he came from, like, the anime master school of teaching where on the surface they're pretty lazy and ineffectual. Mm-hmm. But then if you can somehow get past that, that's when the real knowledge begins. You know, <laughs> that's sort of. And it's like, I was like, I'm on scholarship. I don't have time for this. I don't. <laughs> we need to get to it. We need to get to what the issue is here. I don't have time to be your apprentice. You know, that right. kind of thing. Go <laughs> fetch you coffee from the calf and shit. I don't have time for this. I feel So, yeah, I ended up changing majors and, you know, it's just kind of went from there. But now you said earlier that you didn't really get into design or I guess you didn't think about design being a career choice until you got to Carnegie Mellon.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you would have asked me even as late as I guess like 2011 – like, if you would have told me in 2011 that, like, my job title would be, like, some type of designer, I would have been like, no way. Like, what, what is the series of events that's going to lead to that? And, you know, like, essentially, when I, when I got to the end of my computer science degree at Howard, one of the main things I learned is that, like, I did not enjoy what the life of a professional, like, software developer would be. You know, I just, I just don't get... You know, like, well, like a lot of people, when they really struggle with a software problem and they get to the end of it and they're like, wow, I finally like figured that out. I'm just like, oh, my God, that took so much time. And I just <laughs> didn't enjoy it. So uh, I started looking for like grad school programs and I started thinking more about like what was I actually interested in within um, computer science. And I think it was actually like the head of our department at Howard, that, um, like, mentioned, like, the field of human-computer interaction to me because I was saying how I was interested in um, kind of, like, more of the front end. Like, I always kind of, like, enjoyed the interface of computers, but um, never so much like anything else. (laughs) And... yeah, like, like, and then luckily, this, this is honestly, it was, it was com- complete luck, but Carnegie Mellon was, they run a program every year where they invite students from um, HBCUs, computer science students, to come visit their school of computer science, and uh, you can pick these different departments to uh, go to within it, and um, they like just run a day of talks or whatever, and um, yeah, and I, I went, and one of the schools I went to was um, their Human Computer Interaction Institute, and they just made a really good presentation. And then I felt like, wow, this is, I need to apply for this. So I, I did. And I, I wasn't really, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody that really applies um, <laughs> to like, like any grad school thinks like, oh, I'm definitely going to get in. But like somehow, you know, I got in and, and like, again, like that, that day was like so compelling for me that like, that's when I knew like I had to go there. Nice. Yeah.
0: Well, let's kind of, I know we spent a lot of time talking about, education and talking about school and of course talking about your background as well i sort of want to shift gears here a little bit to you what does it kind of really mean to be a designer today because you've had a very unique perspective again coming from west to east to back west and then from hbcu to a, a more you know predominantly technical college like seeing all of that taking all that into consideration what do you think it means to you to be a designer today
1: I guess I mostly have to speak from, like, a product design or user experience design perspective. But yeah, I, that's, that's good. Yeah, but I think to be a designer today is to be someone who is able to to empathize with other people and, uh, like, you know, really get a feel for what it is to um, walk in their shoes and uh, understand how their life works so that you can kind of deliver a greater Amount of value to them than like what they're currently experiencing. Yeah, I think I think that's a one sentence summary.
0: Okay. With everything that you have have went through, you know, going again from these different schools and back out west and in Silicon Valley, who have been some of the people that have really helped keep you motivated and inspired throughout this journey?
1: Well, definitely parents, my parents, and my friends. I made a spectacular group of friends at Howard. And, you know, it's like we're still family, even though a lot of them still are on the East Coast and I'm over here, but we still keep in contact a lot. Um, We know what's going on in each other's lives and we're each other's kind of like biggest fans. Also, since I've been uh, in the design industry, a lot of my classmates from CMU have been a very, a big, big motivation in my life. In fact, um, a lot of us kind of like moved out here to San Francisco eventually after leaving Pittsburgh and... That's still kind of like my uh, like my primary group of friends out here. So we definitely like see each other a lot. And, you know, we keep up with what's going on in each other's jobs. And uh, there's like a lot of support there, which is really nice.
0: What's the best thing about the work that you do?
1: I think the best thing about it is the variety and, and the reach. I guess that's two things. But <laughs> there's, um, I guess, like for me, there's just a lot of different things I'm able to work on at any given time like I've I've touched like just in one year I've touched the you know a good number of different products that um different people use and then in terms of the reach you know there's just you know people all over California that use some of the products that I work on which is which is really cool and you can kind of like get fairly intimate with um some of the different user populations because like sometimes you are designing something that isn't meant to be used by like you know like I don't know, thousands upon thousands of people. Sometimes it is very few and you actually know like some of the individuals that you kind of like change things for, which is pretty cool. Yeah.
0: What would you say is the best advice you've been given, just professional advice?
1: Probably to like always work on your communication skills. Okay. I think it's especially applicable for designers, but um, just having good verbal communication, good um, written communication, presentations and whatnot. It's just extremely key, you know, whether you're trying to, uh, I don't know, like, like gather a following for an initiative you're trying to do at work, or if you're trying to help like an engineer understand some of your wireframes or like, it kind of always goes back to communication. And if you're able to do it well, I think you're able to accomplish more.
0: Do you feel like that the design community is getting better when it comes to diversity, I know the the conversation, you know, we spoke about this much earlier conversations mostly around diversity in tech. Do you feel that it is is starting to shift or change with design as well?
1: Well, that's the interesting thing. I'm really not sure if it is or not. Yeah. I think that design kind of is unfortunately able to hide behind the greater kind of like tech conversation that's going on, you know, and then a lot of the diversity pushes I see, like, like they tend to get a little bit more specific to like diverse, diversifying like engineering populations. But mm-hmm. uh, when it comes specifically to design, I'm really not sure. Especially when you get into like the, the agency world. I don't know, like especially out here in San Francisco, like, you know, you, you look up agencies because different, you know, you hear about different work that people are doing. And like, like it's very rare out here that you see Honestly, kind of any people of color working at an agency—not even just black people. I mean, there'll be a few typically, but like, like design is—it's still, uh, I think, at least out here in the in the Bay Area, it's still like very, very homogenous. <laughs> you know, it, it makes it makes tech kind of look good in some cases, which is which is interesting.
0: I mean, I, I think about that, of course, because you know, with Revision Path, I really have lately shifted the focus more towards. Design because I felt like that conversation still wasn't happening, nor do I feel like it was happening, I guess, to the uh, not the severity, I'd say to the reach of diversity in tech. I feel like there was no shortage of diversity in tech conversations or conferences or blogs or podcasts or anything like that. Diversity in design, eh, not so much. So, that's I guess that's good to know in a way <laughs> that out there in the valley, it still seems to be a bit of an issue. I don't want to say good in the fact that it's not being talked about, but good in that there's still, I think, work to do. And then hopefully that means there's still minds to change and hearts to change as it relates to that as well.
1: Yeah. And I think a big piece of it is people just kind of being set up to succeed. You know, like, like kind of in my situation is like, you know, I was I was very close to like never becoming a designer, you know? <laughs> and I think that that is kind of the case for a lot of people. I don't I don't know how much the design profession gets discussed like early earlier on in the lives of people of color, you know? And I think that that's kind of an important piece that may be missing for a lot of people. I don't I don't know how many people really realize that being a designer can be like a fairly lucrative career either and i think that um it is kind of key that people are at least aware of that option you know like earlier on than like in my situation like grad school but (laughs) certainly you know before that
0: and with people that i've had on the show i mean i think that it's it's varied a lot for some people they were always cognizant even from an early age that at least arts or something was a field that they could go into and then for others I feel like they really mostly learned right around high school that this was maybe something. So then they picked whatever the school was that could help them out. But there's still all these other kind of pitfalls and things that can happen along the way. Like you have to convince your family that this is something that you can actually make a living off of. And if you decide to go to an art or design school, they're pretty expensive. And how are you going to be able to pay for that? And it's there's still all these different kind of things that are happening along that quote unquote pipeline, we'll say that path, we don't want to call it a pipeline, (laughs) but along that path to becoming someone that is a member of the design community. I think what's interesting with design is that, and in a way it's like this with tech as well, you don't really have to have went to school for it to be a practitioner of it. Right. You know, like with design, as long as you have a pretty good portfolio, you can probably go into most places and at least get considered for something or get a job. Whereas with other, you know, professions, I think it's still just some, a greater amount of rigor that has to go into play.
1: Definitely. And I think um, that, that's like a key, a key kind of like realization for a lot of people to have if they're going to kind of like eventually enter this industry. And I think also is just making sure your creativity doesn't really get stifled ever, you know, like. Mm hmm. Like, I know um, before, before I started, like, really trying to become a designer, I wouldn't, like, do too many creative things. Like, I would, if I had, like, an idea for, like, oh, how, I don't know, how, like, some type of graphic could look, I would think, like, well, I'm not really, like, a design person or, like, I'm not really an artistic person, so I'm not going to, like, invest, like, time and energy in trying to, like, really make this look nice. But if you are able to just kind of, like, change that thought pattern and realize, well, no, like, I can make a nice thing that other people can appreciate, you'll you'll just invest more in that, and, you know, possibly you you will have enough to just become, like, a designer from, like, kind of, like, a self-motivated portfolio. You know, there's, there's a ton of jobs, <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah. Where do you kind of see yourself in the next uh, few years now with the way that the industry is going?
1: Yeah, so <laughs> I typically don't try to, plan out things that far because I kind of feel like life can kind of just happen and you never know. But um, yeah. if, I'm, if I'm able to just kind of, I guess, stay steady along, I think I'll, I'll still kind of be doing UX design work. I think at some point I want to try to figure out, at least maybe on my own time, how to incorporate maybe some more, I guess, worthy causes into like what I focus my design abilities towards. Not that like my current work is, um, you know, not super uh, fulfilling or anything, but just I feel like there are so many kind of like, you know, deep problems and maybe even problems that aren't so deep, but just places that like can use design. And there's like kind of so many companies in Silicon Valley that are like starting up to, you know, solve a problem no one has. And (laughs) I think, I don't know, I just want to do some more like meaningful design projects in the next few years.
0: What kind of meaningful design projects? Do you have anything in mind?
1: Yeah. So I guess in addition to technology, I've kind of always been interested in education, or at least since high school, I've been kind of interested in education. And it's kind of like still a vague idea in my mind, but I kind of want to do something around like the soft skills of of academia and communicating that to kind of like people at every stage of the academic process, kind of like maybe from like elementary school, middle school, you know, high school, college, even grad school, having like some sort of resource that people can go to to kind of understand if if maybe like academia isn't necessarily a part of your family's culture or history, what you should be doing kind of like at each of these different stages so people can have an easier time navigating it. Um, But (laughs) that's still, uh, it's still pretty vague though. But, um, it's an idea. No, I mean kicking it, around.
0: it's it's vague, but I think it is completely necessary because I see that as being a corollary to what we're really seeing now with all these hackathons and things like that. It's really preparing and maybe in some cases over preparing people from a very technical standpoint. But then, you know those soft skills of of time management, of you know things like that that right. you really need to know throughout your academic career like it's not it's, I mean it is about what you know and your skills but yeah. it's also about how you're able to manage them.
1: Yeah or like how to fully leverage your counselor in high school or your advisor in college. Right, you know, right. Like these, these weren't things that were apparent to me <laughs> you know like eventually um, and, and unfortunately sometimes after the fact I would realize like oh I should have been uh, meeting with this person a lot more often because they just would mm-hmm. have like helped me more you know mm-hmm. and, and that's you know, not necessarily apparent for a lot of people. And I, I think, like, kind of, like, disseminating this, this knowledge at scale is kind of, like, a, a key thing,
0: right? perhaps. Like teaching you how to work the system that you're in, basically. Yeah. Because yeah, some things know. you just don't know until it's – I don't want to say until it's too late, but, I mean, I think – like, I thought I was good at time management in college, but I didn't really, really learn about it until I started my business because time was money. Right. <laughs> so I really have to to get really good and really clear about, you know, if this isn't making me money, I need to not be doing it. Or I need to know just how much time is this taking because it could make me this. You know what I mean? Like I had to really get very particular with that. I mean, now it's the sort of more of a type A kind of thing where if it's not on my calendar, it ain't happening. <laughs> but it's good in that I know what it's going to take to get something done. Maybe before I even started or anything like that, I know. I can be thinking of a new project and say, well, that'll take me two days to get it up and running. Yeah, exactly. And I know it'll take me two days because I know it'll take me half a day to do this, a few hours to do that, you know, that sort of thing. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Kevon, just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and everything online?
1: Uh, sure. So they can go to my website, which is kevonticer.com, which is K-E-V-O-N-T-I-C-E-R.com. And I am going to update it very soon, as I always promise myself. <laughs> <laughs> and other than that, I'm also on Twitter. You can find me at callmekev underscore, because some other Kev has the non underscore, or Instagram at kevtice.
0: All right. Sounds good. Well, Kevon Tyser, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for really having this very kind of open and candid conversation with me about you know, just design and curriculum and how it works in school, because I think that is a key that is not really talked about a lot. Certainly, there's the conversation about getting to college, you know, Mm -hmm. getting to college, studying a certain field, whatever, whatever, whatever. But, you know, how are these things setting you up for the future? And I think it was good to see how they've set you up for the future. And I'm really excited to kind of see what you'll be working on next. I think those those meaningful design projects you talked about, particularly those soft skills, are something that is is very, very important. So thank you again so much, so much for coming on the show. I appreciate
1: it. No, definitely. This was great. Thank you. Thoughts of love are in your mind.
0: And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Kavan Tyser and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Kavan and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook invests in design. They care deeply about how their design team might do their best work, and that manifests itself in a number of different ways, such as building tools like origami, sharing what they learned on Medium, and by giving back to the design community. Learn more about Facebook Design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters attitude might be playful but their business is serious sign up for a free account today mailchimp send better email hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domains search for a few keywords and hover will show you the best available options across all the 400 plus domain extensions out there ready to get started save 10 percent off your first purchase by using the promo code RevisionPath at checkout this episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, please do me a huge favor. Leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It only takes us a minute or two. It really helps the show bump up in those iTunes rankings for design podcasts. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. The Vision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash path and pledge your support. Pledge levels start at just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.